On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Paul Sanchez about theological liberalism. So we cover topics like just what is theological liberalism? What caused many in the 19th and 20th century to desire theological liberalism? What are the social and cultural factors that are motivating these sort of ideas? Why did American Southern liberalism not flourish like Northern liberalism? What's the history of liberalism as it relates to specifically to the Southern Baptist Convention? Do liberals still exist in the SBC today? Is theological liberalism a real, genuine threat to Orthodox Christianity and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this was going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And in being serious about thinking, we want to be serious about certain intellectual virtues that go along with good thinking. So we've decided and attempted to promote and to prize particular virtues such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism all while we think. And we try to model that in all of our conversations that we have on the podcast, all of our interactions that we have, and articles that we post online. Uh, We're not always perfect at it. We're always shooting to, to grow in those virtues, but it's something that we want to promote and hope that others catch a vision for and find it as something that's both distinctively Christian and distinctively attractive. Given that, We are going to be talking with Dr. Paul Sanchez today about theological liberalism, particularly American theological liberalism. Now, that's a big topic, so there's a lot of stuff we can cover. I'm not going to even attempt to say the the pronounce the name of the guy you researched in your dissertation, Paul. Uh, I'll let you do that first so I don't sound dumb. But I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really interested in it. And I mean, I, I can't out you, but I see three volumes from Nettles behind you. So I mean, you are, you know, you're, you're a serious Baptist historian as well. Um, anyway, before we jump in, why don't you give us a little bit of background of who you are uh, and what it is that made you interested in devoting years of your life to thinking about liberalism? Yeah, well, uh, really great to be here, guys. Um, I'm originally from San Jose, California. I was born and raised there. Um, but then because of education, kind of bounced around a few places, college in Missouri. And I've got my, my mother's side of the family is there. My roots are there on her side. Spent time in Louisiana, went to New, uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and then doctoral, did doctoral work, uh, a couple degrees up at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Um, my supervisor was Greg Wills, and he's now at Southwestern Seminary, and he's he's the reason I went to Southern. He's the reason I wanted to study church history. He's the reason that I got into this topic. So so much of it, really, I you know I, I can either blame him or thank him. Um, and he uh, he he is on one hand one of those guys that can spend many hours in the archives and can tell you where each and every article of anything is in any archive in the United States and probably beyond. And I love that. And so he knew how to get into the primary sources, but um, but he also is an intellectual historian. Uh, he's a theologian, and so he can dig into the things. And so it was those two things that I was very drawn by, and the things that ultimately a reason I studied under him. And theological liberalism was something that interests me um, uh, on, on, honestly, a personal side. So I took seminars with him, and we studied a lot of these things. That was interesting. But then when I first met some, some of... I was going to say old liberals, uh, basically people who would call themselves moderates, moderate Baptists, um, that were still in the Louisville area. And I began in meeting some of them and interacting with them a little bit. And I found myself fascinated. A guy who's not raised Baptist, uh, I was raised Pentecostal. Um, if you're a Latino, you pretty much can be a, a Catholic or a Pentecostal. That's about two options you got. And um, But anyway, I, so I became a Baptist in college. And so long story short, I found these people fascinating and um, as much as I found myself in a different planet than they were theologically sometimes. Um, and so that was sort of my, my entryway into that. I could say a lot more, but uh, it was honestly, a lot of it was, was personal as much as it was intellectual. Yeah, that's awesome. And you're also like a legit pastor theologian because you're, are you like a fellow for the Center of Pastor Theologians? Yeah, it's a really neat fellowship. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a fellow for the Saint, in the St. John's Fellowship at the CPT, the Center for Pastor Theologians. I'm one of the few Southern Baptists. There's not that many. Uh, there's a few of us there. you got Anglicans, Presbyterians. I mean, just kind of a host of, of guys, non-denominational Bible church people. 
Uh, and that's been really neat because I, I do love the local church and I love preaching and I love shepherding. And yet I, I've had to admit with myself, I'm, I'm an intellectual. I love ideas. Um, and sometimes it's hard to, to sort of use those muscle, you know, sort of flex those muscles in the local church. And so I, I love the CPT and, and certainly I've got seminary friends and so on, things like that, that I'm able to do that with. But yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun. Okay. So maybe we begin with just what is theological liberalism, particularly as it's seen in America? Um, and maybe, I mean, you can divide this up if you want. So if you want to think, you know, from the Civil War to World War II in the South, or, or how those things are supposed to be categorized properly. Yeah. Um, so, of course, every seminarian is familiar with some of the roots of theological liberalism in, in Germany, in the UK, you know, on the continent of Europe. Um, but Gary Dorian, you know, is, is one, he's, he's not the first one to do this, but he makes such a, a clear, compelling case for sort of an indigenous theological liberalism that rises in America. It's not just that they're reading Ritual and Schleiermacher and so on, um, but but there are some sort of indigenous, homegrown, in other words, theological liberalism um, that emerged in the United States in the really the very beginning of the 19th century, Theodore Parker and, and guys like that. Um, and so there's a lot that could be said about that, but that's primarily in New England. It's primarily in the North, and it doesn't become a national phenomenon in those early years. Um, really, it's it's after the Civil War uh, in the late 19th century that what we could really look at is, is full, full-blown, having all the characteristics of theological liberalism are really emerging, 1870s, 80s, and 90s especially, really gets going in the 1890s. Um, and so I, I find, and this was true for me, you know, when I was taking my first doctoral seminars and even as a THM student, that, you know, we, we often think of liberalism as something that is more um, quantitative. It's something that you sort of are on a scale. And, and it's not that that's completely false. It's not that, I mean, there's some truth. You can be more or less liberal, right? But really, it's more qualitative. There are these things that make up what it meant to be. And, and still today, uh, it evolves, certainly. So, so even then, when we talk about theological liberals today, they still exist, but it's very different. Um, but there is, there, there is a lot of things, some of the background, um, I guess there's like three main things that are influencing the rise of theological liberalism in terms of ideas. There's a lot of social stuff, a lot of cultural stuff that we could talk about, and I think they're equally important. But as far as intellectually, you have the influence of the Enlightenment, um, to some extent coming a little bit late in its real you know, growth in the United States. You have pietism, especially continental pietism, German pietism, and you have romanticism. And that one is enormous. Um, all, all of them are important. All three of them are important. But romanticism, the spirit of romanticism, kind of starting in, in sort of German literature, literary culture, um, art, and so on and so forth, um, becomes extremely influential, makes its way to the UK. Um, and, and, and in some sense, they're almost parallel what's going on there. Um, and then it's making way to the United States. I could talk all day <laughs> about some of this stuff. I'll try to keep that short. But in the United States... It really is coming to bear after the Civil War. This these sort of streams are coming, and there's some cultural things going on in the United States. But my my main focus was in the American South um, because it's so understudied, and there's an assumption. I mean, even among Southern historians, um, not just religious historians, but your great you know sort of signs of uh, Southern history, like like Woodward and guys like this, that would assume that well, if there are any you know liberals in the South. You know, basically, we don't we don't know who they are. And, you know, in other words, it's really diminishing that there was a movement. But what I found is that theological liberalism really was a national movement. It's in the north, of course, and that's what we always hear about. Um, and then it's in the south and then it makes its way to the west. I mean, it truly is um, a movement that's going on and there's interaction between them. You have guys at the University of Chicago engaging with guys in Birmingham and Nashville and Charlotte and so on. Um, and obviously guys in the, on the East Coast and so on. And so it really is a movement. And put, uh, William Louis Petit, the guy that I studied, he's the, a perfect example of this. He's lecturing at these major divinity schools of the North um, and, uh, and engaging with them, writing letters with them. They respect him. They hail him as this great progressive hero in the South. And so I'm um, giving you a long answer, but theological liberalism in the South is really just part of this larger story of American religion. And that's what I found so compelling is it gives, gives so much insight into the American mind, into what was going on culturally, socially, and, and intellectually. So maybe we can pivot now to the figure that you studied uh, most directly in your dissertation, uh, William Poteet. So it's actually kind of interesting as I was looking at your dissertation, you know, he grew up just a few counties over from where I grew up uh, in North Carolina. It looks like his 
His mom went to a Baptist college that is, well, the Baptist college isn't there anymore, but it would have been 10 minutes down the road from where I am now. Um, so it was interesting reading about that stuff. So maybe just tell us about, you know, who he was, what was his uh, religious upbringing, and then tell us a little bit about his story as he drifted from, seems like more conservative theologically, to uh, eventually into liberalism. So, so William Lewis Petit, and you said his name right. You had it right. That was good. <laughs> you were saying earlier. Um, sometimes it's 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 you know he's drawn out Petit a little bit more, uh, you, you know, with the Southern draw. But but William Lewis Petit, it's French, of course, the last name. His um, his ancestors were Huguenots or Huguenots, um, is where the name comes from. Like like many people in North Carolina, he's got some roots back there. Um, so yeah, Yanceyville, this tiny little town. <laughs> um, he so his his family they were Old South folks. So his parents were wealthy. Um, they were some of the the most wealthy planters in the Piedmont region of North Carolina. Uh, they were not cotton farmers primarily, which again they're in the Piedmont. You know they're not in South Carolina, um, but you know they farmed a whole bunch of different things. But they, he, he grew up in wealth and privilege, and and it's really the mo- the most traditional Southern Baptist um, upbringing that you could you know that you would envision. Right? Uh, he's a young man. A young man's not even the right way. He's a young child really during the Civil War. He's born in the mid-1850s, so he's not a soldier, but his brothers are. Uh, one of his brothers is killed during the war. Um, his father uh, is converted. His mother has a deep, uh, deep connection to Baptist roots. You mentioned the college he went to and so on. Um, but his father is, is, uh, is converted a little bit later in life as an adult. And so, but, but Petit grows up in this, this very you know, pious and dedicated uh, traditional Baptist family. Um, but the thing that does make them different is that they 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 have a great emphasis on education and on um, sophistication and those sort of things and then sort of that old South background. A lot of interesting stuff, especially when it comes to thinking about race and some things like that in his background. I deal with some of that in the dissertation, um, but his background is 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 pretty standard old South, uh, you know, with all the privilege that comes with that. And um, it's not really a drift. Uh, I mean, I often use the word, and very often we think about that, a drift toward liberalism. To him, it comes more as a crisis moment. Um, He goes off to college as a pretty traditional Southern Baptist and uh, goes to Wake Forest, uh, what's now Wake Forest University, what was Wake Forest College. And that was really the premier Baptist college of North Carolina. Really, really the Carolinas. It is a, is a premier school. If you wanted to be a Baptist minister or anyone within the Baptist world, if that's where you went, if you were in this region, um, which I say this region, I live in, in uh, North Carolina now myself. And um, which my dissertation is how I got here, by the way. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, and so he goes off to college and has at least early on a fairly traditional experience, but Wake Forest and, and, and really, I wrote, wrote on Wake Forest as much as I did him, um, because so much of his, his career was there. Um, yes, it's a fairly traditional school, but already in the 1870s, when he's there, they are imbibing some of this modern spirit, um, this, this, this great emphasis on progress and sophistication and getting away from the baggage of the Old South. Now, they're proud Southerners. Uh, they're they're not g- giving up their southernness, but it's it's basically this early sort of New South spirit, which is so important in all this. I give a whole chapter to the New South, um, and so he's imbibing some of that, but it's really at least according to his own words, and and I think that he's being honest from all the things I can say. I think he's pretty perceptive of his own thoughts. It's after he graduates, he becomes a professor. First, he's sort of an instructor, you know, tutor, and then becomes a professor eventually of biology. Now, he has no training in biology, which was not uncommon back then. You just basically learn your subject and, you know, regurgitate it to your students. So much of it was lectures and so on. He's going to be one of the first in the South to introduce laboratory biology to the to the university classroom. Fascinating story with some of this. He's very innovative. But he um, he comes to this crisis with, the, with Darwinian evolution. And that is a theme that comes up over and over again with theological liberals is that they're exposed to some of these enlightenment ideas and very often, and especially the biggest thing is exposed to Darwinism. How do you then um, resolve this crisis? Science is king. You know, there, there's, there's this point where by the 1870s and 1880s, if you are an intelligent person, North or South, you, you basically, you know, imbibe this idea that whatever science says, it is, it's king. It, it is, it is God in its own domain. Now, maybe science doesn't have a lot to say about morals and spiritual things, and that's true. But when it comes to, you know, facts, Petit will often use that word. We're talking about facts. Science is king. 
And so they, they basically science is given sovereignty over this domain of, of all facts, all material things, and anything you can put under a microscope. And so at the end of the day, basically Petit uh, takes science at its word and, and basically taking the paradigm of, of Darwinian evolution. And with that, he basically has to modulate Christianity to fit in that. He has a crisis of faith. And again, a, a, almost every theological liberal has some memoir where they describe some of this. And it's fascinating to read. Petit gives really pours out his heart pretty openly, both privately and publicly. I'm able to read his journals and also able to read things he wrote publicly. Um, and so a lot of it comes down to this crisis and he doesn't want to lose his faith. He doesn't want to lose the Bible. So what do you do? You have to rethink it. And so there is this full reconceptualization of what Christianity is. And going back to your last question, what is theological liberalism? Well, that's it. It is a reconceptualization of Christianity in light of modern ideas and right in light of science, uh, in light of all the things that we know as, as modern, sophisticated, intelligent people, um, if we want to hold on to our faith, and they did, they thought of themselves as apologists, we have to rethink Christianity, modernize it, which is why they called it modernism, which is, I think, a better name even than liberalism. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I read all the different stories that seem to have happened 19th, 20th century, and Darwinism always seems to co come up. Yeah. Is it really? And, and I'm trying. I'm reading through James. I can't pronounce his last name. Uh, we're having him on for an interview. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if you're listening to this, James, I'm sorry. That's I can't right. Pronounce it either. It, I haven't heard him say it. it the yeah. book is is fascinating, and yeah. the cover is just absolutely gorgeous. Uh -huh. But what he tries to say is, you know, the the science, the verse religion conflict sort of thesis is, I guess, a little bit. Um, overcooked in some ways. So it's it's not really that there was this strong conflict. Maybe, though, there is in a popular imagination sense, where it's these two uh, heavyweights in a fight to the death. I mean, I think, you know, monk, Scope's monkey trial, all this stuff that's in, like, the theological imagination of people, uh, of church people as they go on, where if Darwinism is true, then my faith is false. Yeah. Is that really how everybody's thinking? I mean, because at least for me, I, I haven't done all the historical work that's what's in my imagination is yeah. there's this fight to the death, and if I even give Darwinism an inch, uh, then my faith is just cooked. Yeah. And I think that's the way my even my youth group – I mean, I grew up conservative, yeah. Southern Baptist, evangelical, apologetics equals, you know, challenging evolution. Yeah. And so it's kind of like that was really truly the conflict. It um... – the, the way that, that you, and you framed it up really well, I think that's, you know, the way I would have perceived it growing up. That's really the conflict that, and, and I'll have to say, I haven't read James's book. I deeply regret I haven't. It's been on my radar for months and I, I just, I regret I haven't read it. I've, I've certainly, I've thumbed through some of it, but I, I, I need to read it and, and I look forward to and look forward to your conversation with him. Um, but a lot of that is really primarily a product of post-1920 um, when you've got the, the true rise of fundamentalism in the 1890s, there is no fundamentalism. Um, and that's also part of the fascinating thing here is for about a generation, theological liberalism develops and is given some liberty and freedom without virtually any opposition. So there is that the conflict thesis, uh, as, as I'm assuming now, maybe he's tracing this back to the 18th century and, you know, even some pre-Darwinian stuff. I'm not sure what he's doing and all that. But but the way it's framed, the way, way you framed that up is really sort of post-1920 fundamentalism versus modernism thing. Whereas before that, most of this is more subjective. It's it's in the minds of these men. Um, and I say men, I, I suppose women as well, but it's something, a crisis that they go through. It's not so much something being ex ex like put on them externally, but it's something that they're grappling with. And it's not just, it's not just science. I mean, there's other things too, but that one weighs so heavily on their hearts for some reason. And I think it's because, again, it's not just that science is now given greater credence or credibility, but it becomes really sovereign in its realm. And so that weighs heavily on them. And then also, so you have this, this desire again, and I'll start think, speaking about Southerners, but this would have been true a little bit earlier in the North. You have this desire to be perceived as intelligent. You don't want to be backward. You don't want to be perceived as, you know, in the way that Northerners like to depict the South as sort of the barefoot hillbilly. Um, and so there's this desire to be thoughtful. And, and if, if I'm going to be perceived as an educated, sophisticated man, well, then I, I have to accept the claims of modern science, right? And so it's not, it's not so much, so, so are they really, so it depends on the person. So, so some people, like you have an E.Y. Mullins, and, and I hope that we get to talk more about Mullins because he's such an interesting kind of middle character. 
Um, he's no, I was actually just open. about to ask you about him. Good, good. He, he's sort of open to some of these ideas, but he's not real dogmatic about them. To him, he just sort of remains sort of agnostic on that issue. And so it's not a crisis of faith for him. And that's true for a lot of guys. I think that's true for C.S. Gardner uh, at Southern Seminary, among some other guys. Um, and there are plenty of people in so, you know, among theological liberals, they're going to embrace a Darwinian framework and yet have a very vibrant faith, at least in terms of religious thought and activity. We could talk theologically about whether they're genuinely converted and so on. That's a different question. But as far as just externally, um, these, these men are not saying that it conflicts at all. It's the fundamentalists later that make this this sort of either or. And so, so I, I would probably, I hope that's helpful. It's primarily going to be something that's, that's coming more out of this clash between these two worldviews. And, um, and that's a little later. Yeah. So speaking of, of, of Mullins, so we actually just recorded an interview about mm-hmm. Mullins and just literally an hour ago. So this is fr- fresh great. on my that's mind. Great. So did he have any interactions yeah. with Poteet? Did they have any uh, influence one way oh, yeah. or another on each other? What, what did that look like? He and Poteet are dear friends. Uh, it's a, uh, well, dear friend, they're not old chums, but they are very warm. Um, you know, they consider one another colleagues. They're both president at, South- at Southern Baptist schools. One's a university. One is a, uh, is a seminary. Uh, he invites Petit to come up and lecture at Southern. It's fascinating that in 1900, so again, think 20 years before, 25 years before scopes and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, in, ni- in 1900, uh, Petit goes up to Southern, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, um, to, to deliver the, the Julius B. Gay lectures. Um, and he, the, the whole topic is about science and religion. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating read. In fact, if you want to understand sort of this early theological liberalism among Baptists, you got to read that. Um, he, he lays it out, you know, no, no, uh, um, no sugarcoating, I guess is the best way to say it. Basically his, his promotion of this liberal version of Christianity, this reconceptualized religion in relation to its conflict with science. So, so I'd even be interested to hear. So, you know, if I get to talk with James, I want to ask him if he's read some of this stuff, um, where basically he's saying, you know, uh, there is no conflict, absolutely, but you better accept the science. And if you want to be a sophisticated preacher, you better study biology, um, because that's you know we don't get we don't get our knowledge of science from the Bible. Um, the Bible is not a science textbook, and so if you want to understand how the world operates, don't read your Bible. Go read biology. Um, and so basically, he's he's given all he's given the, his whole apologetic in 1900 at Southern Seminary to a room full of seminarians, and there are crickets. Like Baptists don't freak out. They don't start writing editorials against this crazy liberal. In fact, Petit goes and stays with, with Mullins, like they're buddies. Um, and he's getting praises from, from you know, professors at Southern and elsewhere. Wow, what a great, enlightened, and thoughtful, and hopeful, and progressive you know, take on, on all these things. Because by 1900, uh, American Protestants and, and evangelicals in the South are, are, are part of this. They're wanting to, to respond to, to these new ideas. They want to think, how do we make it in this modern world? The things are changing. And Petit offers a vision. Like, this is how we can, this is how we can do it. We can be thoughtful and yet still be pious and devoted and moral and, and, and engaged in, in the mission of the church, as he, would, as he would call it, even if it's redefined. Um, and so a lot of people, basically, you're more educated Southern Baptists. In fact, I would say all of them, all of these liberals are educated. Um, are going to embrace his view. Some of them just don't get it. It's so over their head. It seems so bizarre. They, they don't know what to do with it. I mean, until Machen comes along, you know, a little bit later to say, actually, we are dealing with something that is fundamentally, you know, unchristian. It's, it's a different religion. A lot of these early people, they don't know how, they don't know what to do with it. It just sounds so unusual using a lot of the same verbiage of Christianity, the spirit. Uh, these guys knew how to preach. Um, and so in many ways, uh, it, uh, it, they don't know what to do with it. And then there's like one guy who might say, this sounds like heresy. Um, but other than that, I mean, it, there's very little opposition. So, so back to your question, Mullins, um, Mullins considers him a brother in Christ and they're buddies and he's glad to have him. They write letters to one another. And, um, Mullins is basically, if I could say one more thing about Mullins, he, he imbibes this, this uh, much of the same spirit as Petit. He has the same epistemology in terms of religious experience uh, being really how we know 
religion, right? We don't know it primarily and uniquely through an authoritative written text. Um, he's not petite. He's not. He's not liberal in that same way. So there is a a quantitative difference in, in there. But basically, Mullins is a sort of very conservative liberal, maybe. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to put that in writing necessarily. I, I, I might, uh, I don't remember exactly the language that I used, but basically M- Mullins holds on to sort of the, the key components of, of orthodoxy, but even then he does it primarily through, through, you know, the same sort of, um, framework of religious experience. So for instance, you read Mullins on the virgin birth in his systematic theology, and he goes through all these things, reflecting on the virgin birth, because I'm, I'm saying that because that becomes one of the fundamentals that the fundamentalists use, right? And so Mullins uses it and, and talks about it. And, and basically, you know, this is the challenges that come to it. And this is why it could be problematic. And this is how we know some things historically. And at the end, he basically says, and yeah, we should probably hold on to the virgin birth because Christians have believed it for a long time. And so it's almost just sort of like dumb luck <laughs> that he holds on to the virgin birth. And I, I, I say that, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek, but... Uh, Mullins is so interesting in that he he's he's conservative by his instincts, and 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 probably goes more conservative as he gets older and as he sees some of these things going on at Southern. Um, but at the same way, he he in many ways is sort of in this same circle of guys with with William Lewis Poteet. That's super interesting. So you you're talking about Poteet and he, in your dissertation, you mentioned how he changes his views on a couple of things, authority, meaning, and mission for Christianity. I really liked that. I thought that was helpful. So I, I was hopeful that you could cash out those terms a little bit to, to help. I thought it made a nice framework for thinking what liberalism yeah. is actually out to change. Yeah. Um, so really, on one hand, so Petit is following the sort of the liberal trajectory. Um, theological liberalism, Gary Dorian, you know, lays it out, uh, and, and he's written the three volume sort of standard on theological liberalism for our listeners. Um, really, really helpful. They're dense, they're, they're long, but if you want to sort of understand the, the rise of theological liberalism in America, you got to go to Gary Dorian. Um, he's a professor at union seminary, theologically in a different world, <laughs> but, um, but very, very good historian and really even a philosopher. Um, but, uh, so authority, the sort of getting rid of um, any form of external authority, whether it be sort of religious authority in terms of the church or a written text or just simply handed down traditions, all of that is now gone. It's it's all up for grabs. We can reason through these things ourselves. Some are going to emphasize more reason. But a lot of it is, again, this, this sort of pietistic and romantic religion um, Robert Robert Adams, you know, refer is sort of the one who I don't know if he's coining it, but he often uses the word of romantic religiousness, um, and so it's more felt, and so we know these things through feeling and through intuition and illumination rather than through a written text. As much as they love the Bible, and they do, and I want to say that clearly, they just re envision what the Bible is, um, and so so that's the sort of reframing of authority. Authority is now subjective. It's within your own, within your own heart, within your religious experience, and everyone can make those judgments for themselves rather than a ecclesial authority or even a local church authority in terms of, you know, sort of Baptist. So it could be big church, high church. It could be the local church. All those things are put to the side. These men are still churchmen, most of them, but those things are no longer the authority. It's now me and Jesus. It's now me and the Holy Spirit, um, which is which is fascinating as you think about some of the other things going on in American religion at the time. And in terms of mission, right? So so now, what is the church? Are we building the kingdom of God? Yes. But what does that mean? Um, Potit is interesting, and this was true for a lot of Baptists. There still is a an emphasis on personal conversion. And so that's why you, you'd see an evangelical is going to go, oh, we're, we're friends, right? We both talk about needing to preach the gospel and there being personal conversion. So there's some emphasis on that, but it's not framed in the same way. Um, substitutionary atonement and things like that are going out. Um, the need to repent and confess our sins and be forgiven, those things. That, so, so we're not talking about repentance and, and, and atonement and things like that. The, the, the bloody atonement stuff, we need to get rid of all that. But, but there is still a need for conversion, which basically is moral um, and, and owning up to your mission and your importance in the world of, of doing good works and being a good person. And, and in this sort of, a lot of it, honestly, is this utopian dream of building a better world. And, 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 and again, that's the progressive era influence of, of the age, uh, when Petit is coming to, to light and all these things. 
Um, and so it is. It's, it's a re-envisioning. What you got with the social gospel and a lot of that, that, that's part of the mission. But a lot of it also is just personal moral. But there's also a darker side to it um, where eugenics comes in. Um, and so I, I have a whole chapter that's, I mean, a lot of it's dealing, my, uh, dealing with eugenics. Petite is a major, not just a proponent of, of eugenics in terms of an idea of assenting to this is a good thing, but actively involved in it, um, in speaking at civic groups and handing out flyers and emphasizing how much we need eugenics because of, um, again, this utopian idea. We even need to get the human race right by getting rid of undesirable traits, undesirable people. And some of these sort of things. And so there's this really dark underbelly to a lot of this as well, which is really tragic. Race comes in. I deal with that, you know, in significant measure um, along with eugenics. And so, so it is, it's, um, it is a re-envisioning of, of not only ideas. Um, ideas actually become secondary, again, to experience. Um, you have sort of a doctrineless Christianity in many cases, um, doctrine is made secondary or tertiary sometimes. Um, that what is the church? What is the mission of the church? What is the mission of a very Christian? All these things are, are sort of reimagined. And sometimes, if you're if you're just an outside observer, you're not fully aware of the difference. Again, because if you're wanting people to be converted and wanting to do good works, well, doesn't every Christian want that? Um, and so that's how I think for for many years they're able to sort of I don't even want to say fly under the radar, but they're able to just sort of even work arm in arm. With with men who and women who had very different views theologically, um, can I give a little anecdote about that? Um, so there's this fascinating letter. Uh, it's in Nashville. You can go to the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives. It's from um, it's from Frost, who was the first. Um, well, what what was it? it was called something else? Basically, he was the first lead at, at what became Lifeway. So the the um, the board, right, the Sunday School Board. And Frost is writing to um, Edwin McNeil Petit, who is William Lewis Petit. Uh, his, it's his brother. Um, they're both presidents at colleges. Uh, his brother's down at Furman University in South Carolina. He's at Wake Forest. And so in this letter, Frost is writing to Edwin McNeil Petit, wanting to hire him for a position at the Sunday School Board, what becomes Lifeway. And he's the first general secretary. There you go. That's what it's called. And, 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 uh, and so, um, McNeil Petit, Edwin McNeil Petit is responding. And basically one of the things that Frost required was, I just want to make sure that you could sign the New Hampshire, uh, New Hampshire confession of faith. Like that should be so standard, right? So just, you know, here's some things for the job. Here's some qualifications. And assuming you can sign the confession, we're good. And when he writes back, his response is so telling of where theological liberalism was going and really had already gone. He says, he says, I've never read a confession of faith before, but he said, I'm glad that I have because it was a learning experience for me. And he said, not only can I not sign it, and he said, but it represents something so utterly different from my religion that I'm glad that I'm now aware of this. And I'm sorry, I can't take you up on this offer. And so this guy, Edmund Mille Petit, was off, being offered this position at, again, I'm using Lifeway, it was the Sunday School Board. And, and he's the president of Southern Baptist school. He's a common, he's a popular preacher. He's authoring books. And he, he has to say, I've never even read one of these confession things. He's heard of them, I'm sure. And he said, but now that I have, he's like, I, he said, it's not just that I disagree with one or two points, but holistically, I, I can't, <laughs> I don't even know what to do with it. So it's a fascinating letter. You can go get it at the archives. Yeah, that is fascinating. So to, to continue on the topic of the SBC, um, and I, I'm sure we could do multiple episodes on, on this alone, but um, maybe trace a little bit of the history of liberalism in the SBC, some important dates and figures that you think might be helpful. And then yeah. um, are there yeah. theological liberals in the Southern Baptist Convention today uh, in your estimation? So so that movement that's really getting steam in the 1890s um, and into the early 20th century is primary. not – I was going to say primarily – almost exclusively within these sort of key New South cities. So um, Nashville, Birmingham, Charlotte, um, basically your, your city, you know, where, again, you go to Birmingham, Alabama, you know, in 1860, it's like a cow town of 500 people. All of a sudden by 1890, it's a true city, like out of nowhere, the city pops up. And so you have all these cities popping up out of nowhere and these that sort of embrace this New South ideology, this New South vision as opposed to old South cities like New Orleans, Mobile, Charlotte, they don't go this way. You don't really have 
the same sort of energy for theological liberalism in some of those old South cities. But Atlanta, Charlotte, you know, these other cities that are having rapid growth out of the Civil War, um, it's primarily rising in those cities. And it's not just academics. It's your prominent preachers and your First Baptist churches and, you know, and prominent lay people as well, attorneys and so on. It's largely educated people, if not exclusively um, educated Southerners. And so by the 19, by 1920, there really is a, what I often am calling a coalition of theological liberals. Um, it's a minority and it's a small minority, but it's a, it's an influential minority. Um, it's a minority in the North too. I mean, oftentimes we think, oh yeah, I bet, you know, University of Chicago, I bet, you know, the Northern Baptist convention was all liberals by 1930. No, it's a minority. I think it's a larger minority in the North without a doubt. Um, it's hard to put numbers on it, but I mean, I've documented, Dozens and dozens of, of guys that I'm able to track down and see how they fit into this, you know, liberal framework and how they're part of this sort of loose coalition um, of guys. Now, they're not formally identified, but they're writing letters to each other. They're engaging with one another. They're inviting each other to speak different places. Sometimes they spend Thanksgiving together. So, so there's friendships sort of fraternally within the, these groups of guys. And William Louis Petit is, is a key figure. Um, not only North Carolina, but that's where his main influence is because he's that's where he lives. That's where uh, Wake Forest is and what's now, of course, the old campus, what's now the campus of Southeastern Seminary. So you walk through Southeastern's offices and they still got that seal, right? This says Wake Forest on that. You know, when I got to go visit the campus, it was so interesting. I got to go to the building, you know, where Petit was a biologist. I mean, just such a neat thing being on campus there. Of course, now Wake Forest University is in Winston-Salem. But um, so 1920s, it's, it's, it's a significant movement. It is a stream in Southern Baptist life. Are most Southern Baptist liberals? Not even close. Most Southern Baptists are very conservative at this time, um, and most of them are rural. And so that's the big thing. Southern Baptists, and this is true up through the conservative resurgence, and it's true today, grassroots Southern Baptists are very conservative, if not always theologically, culturally. So there's a cultural instinct toward conservatism. And some of that is influenced by political things going on and sort of a doubling down. And so there's a lot of stuff we could talk about there, but just culturally and instinctually, Southern Baptists are very conservative. Um, And so that's true at this time. And yet there is this freedom for about a generation. So we get into the 1920s. You you were even sharing some of the story about, you know, the monkey trial and all these sort of things going on. That's when sort of the battles happen. Petit is, you know, there's an attempt on his, on being removed in 1922, 1925, but they never come close because he is so, uh, he is so secure in his position um, and so respected. I mean, the, the movements against him, you know, they, they falter. Um, they, they don't even come close. Um, although there are two movements, so that is important. There is enough of this sort of rise of fundamentalism that there's a, there's a fight, but, but the liberals prevail. They have institutional power at most of the colleges, at the seminaries, um, and that continues on to basically your post-World War II. Um, You have this large number of men coming back from World War II. They have the GI Bill, and so they're going off to colleges and to seminary. And so by that point, you have sort of a second and third generation of theological liberals. Again, it's never holistic, but they have major institutional power, um, and they're tolerated. So, so the battles have, have been fought in the 1920s, and now theological liberalism, if, if, if not being more careful, you know, they're, they're more careful, they, because they realize their constituency and their grassroots Southern Baptists, the vast majority are conservative, they know how to play, um, but go, going through the 1940s and 50s, um, and, and some historians, I think, rightly point out sort of a high watermark in the 1960s of public liberalism. Right, we've got Elliot, we've got all that stuff with Genesis and all that. Um, it's sort of liberals pushing the boundaries. So by the time you have schools like Midwestern and Gateway and these schools being founded already at that time, they're they're sort of representing where Southern Baptists are, which are fairly progressive. You know, is there an inerrantist on their faculty? Yeah, there's gonna be a few conservative people, um, but largely the mainstream becomes um, this, this liberal bent, this liberal spirit. I often call it liberal spirit because it's not just about theology. It's an approach. It's a spirituality. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mindset. Um, it is an embracing of sort of the, the, the modern world and all that it is and, and um, uncritically sometimes. And so that continues on up until basically the 1970s and the conservative resurgence. 
the, there's a lot of great work um, that's been done about the resurgence. And so, you know, our, our you know, uh, listeners and, and you guys, you know, obviously are very familiar with a lot of this probably in any of your Baptist history classes in seminary. If you go to an SBC seminary, you're going to get a lot of this. Um, and so, but again, even, even at the resurgence, we're not talking about 60% of Southern Baptists being liberal. It's just, it's a minority, but it's your key leaders. There's enough, um, there's enough of a tolerance, and even tolerance is not the right word. There, there's enough of an establishment for theological liberalism in SBC life in the mid 20th century and before the resurgence um, that that you can work you can work your way through circles within SBC life and never meet a conservative. You know there are enough there are enough liberal churches, liberal schools, liberal networks, and and relationships and informal networks that you can sort of live in that. And and yeah, okay, you have to you be careful around this and that person. And you know that this trustee or that that preacher or whatever is a fundamentalist or whatever it is. But it truly it it has a, is a real power um, in Southern Baptist life by that time, which is why the resurgence was warranted. Um, now, you know, there's, there's a lot of reassessment going on in recent years as we rethink this, but I thank God for the conservative resurgence and, and, and for, for men and women that sacrifice there. Um, we know the story that it's going on through the 1980s and 90s. And, and is there, are, are there liberals in Southern Baptist life today? You know, there's an interesting thing, and this was, I was reflecting on this just before the podcast. Um, you basically have all of that institutional growth, movement, networking, these numbers of people, um, they, they leave Southern Baptist life. You know, largely, 98, 99% of them leave Southern Baptist life when they lose in the conservative resurgence, right? Or conservative revolution, whatever we want to call it. Um, and so a whole sort of cross-section of Southern Baptist life is removed. And, and it, it's, it, that's actually, the, those are the things I'm thinking through now more and I want to do more work on is understanding it fundamentally changed Southern Baptist life, I think. Um, now, these people are still there. They haven't disappeared. I was telling you I interacted with them in Louisville, um, you know, and, and among other places. I've, I've, they're, they're here in Asheville. Um, you know, the, the CBF, so the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, obviously, has a strong presence in North Carolina. Um, I was asked about the CBF when I came here as a candidate, as a pastor. What, what do you think about the CBF? Because there are CBF churches all over the place. Um, the Alliance of Baptists is even you know, a bit further to the left than the CBF. Um, and then there's a lot of just sort of informal networks of people. And so those, those people still exist. And a, a lot of their seminaries and divinity schools have struggled. So the, the, the theological school in Richmond is closed down recently, um, two years ago, maybe, maybe a year ago. So institutionally, there's been some loss there. Um, but they still have a, you know, they're still, you pull up a map and they have churches in every city in the South. Um, every county seat town in the South has, has representation of this, this, this vestige of theological liberalism in the South. Um, and we, of course we could talk in the North as well, but I'm, I'm speaking primarily here about the South. Um, and so there is sort of a cutting off of Southern Baptist life. Not to say they are totally gone. I mean, do they pop up occasionally? Yeah, but uh, most of them are older, like just, just in age. Right, uh, an older pastor in Alabama, or you know, you hear this thing, you know, about this. Someone said this or that in Tennessee, and I, I, I can usually recognize and identify it. Most of the stuff that we're dealing with today, when you have claims about, oh, look, you know, there's liberalism in the SBC, um, it's 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 very different. Um, you're primarily dealing with uh, a, a lot of times there's a confusion between political liberalism and political and social and cultural issues related to these deeper theological issues that I've unpacked just a little bit, a whole lot more I could say. Um, and so I, I actually, I, I say, I say this, you know, loving the Southern Baptist convention as someone who's was not born and bred, but rather adopt, you know, adopted into the SBC, you know, when I was in college, um, what I, what I regret is that there's so much, um, so many accusations that are just fundamentally invalid and, and are, um, exaggerated, if even if there is some small kernel of truth that are so exaggerated that I fear if in five or 10 years there really is theological liberalism that, that really comes to fore in the SBC, that no one's going to pay attention. Um, it's sort of the boy who cried wolf thing, right? Um, and so I, I, I hate to see that. Have I sometimes sensed some spirit of theological liberalism in some individual? Yes, of course. Um, the, because the cultural things... Some of these things, although they look different in 2021 than they did in 1920, right? Um, but some of those things, occasionally I'll see or hear or pick up some spirit of this. I'm kind of sensitized to it, right, because of my studies. 
Um, but those people usually don't stay. And so, so because again, the SVC is so conservative, um, if, if they really are going to follow a more progressive trajectory, they're going to really struggle in SBC life. And so I've, I've occasionally met a person or occasionally heard something that way. Um, again, a lot more so a lot of it today is, is, is related to political things, CRT and intersectionality and all these sort of things. Um, and it's not to say that there's no connection, but we really are dealing with something fundamentally different um, with the rise of theological liberalism. But I also say, it's not to say that it can never happen. And that's why I do fear that um, no one's going to pay any attention if, if there really were issues with these things. I thank God, I, I think we have solid seminaries. We have a lot of good colleges, you know, I can be grateful for and many churches. Um, our greater challenge in SBC life is is still dealing with pragmatism and mm-hmm. off theological issues and things like that. Um, I thank God that I think we're in a pretty good place theologically, even if we're also a big tent. Yeah, no, that's a good word. I think uh, you're absolutely right that there is some sort of conflation between this earlier version of theological liberalism, which denying the virgin birth, denying others, you know, pretty key tenets of Christianity versus um, having a different take, which I think is a wrong take on something like the issue of race or something like that. To me, that's worlds of difference um, on matters of levels of theological importance. So I think that's uh, a helpful distinction. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, Southeastern. I, I'm, right now I'm actually recording inside of the Southeastern <laughs> building. That's great. So that's great. Uh, this, this makes, it's perfect. So it, yeah, it works really great. well. Um, I'll put you on the hot seat. Give me in 60 seconds or less. I mean, I, we're in all of North Carolina here. Yeah. And that you mentioned the the cooperative, I guess Baptist Fellowship, whatever. I don't remember the name of it, yeah, exact CBF, title. Yeah. But the 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 more liberal, progressive leaning Baptist uh, group in North Carolina. I, I've got friends who are part of that, and yeah. I like them. I, obviously, we we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Do you find that version of theological liberalism as a real threat to Orthodox Christianity, or is it just a threat to um, something else? Well, it, it depends. Um, there, I mean, with the CBF, and again, I, I know people in the CBF and have interacted with them, and and there are some times that I've met someone who we could agree on, you know, most of the essentials, and they're primarily CBF because of their egalitarian. Um, but that's less and less true. I think that was very true in the late '90s, early 2000s. I think it's much less true today um, because. That because basically once you so yeah so much that I could say to this I'm trying to be careful um, the, the fact is is what is often called sort of your old moderates right they're liberals they're theological liberals now maybe they're more on the conservative side maybe they're a Mullins or maybe they're a William Lewis Petit whereas Petit is going to throw out basically all of historic orthodoxy Mullins is going to hold on to most of it maybe all of it um, so there is a bit of a scale there. But it is a, it's a different framework. They have different views of authority. They have different views of mission. So it doesn't mean that that anyone who's a member of a CBF church is automatically unregenerate and automatically hellbent. Um, but it does mean that they have a, very often, if not always, a very different view of the scriptures, um, a different view about the atonement, for instance, um, view about, uh, goodness, a whole lot of things, hermeneutics and so on and so forth, tradition. And so it, it's, it is a different world. In fact, that's what I, I remember telling the church uh, when they had asked me, you know, what did you view on CBF? Because, you know, there are several CBF churches within just, you know, a few minutes of, of our church. Um, and it was basically that. I said, well, I know, I, I know many of them. And there's probably some good things I can say. I, I love the fact that they're helping feed the poor down here. I love the fact, wow, oh, what a beautiful building, you know. So there's some good things I could say. But 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 theologically, we have significant differences. Um, and and I might have more in common with a conservative Roman Catholic than I do with someone in the CBF. Um, that doesn't mean that I yeah. think that they're awful, terrible people. Um, yeah. But I would just have to note those things when you when you get into the um, Alliance of Baptists. They are further left in the CBF. Um, but you, you've got a scale and that would have been true. So for instance, in, in 1960, if you were to go to, to Southern seminary, for instance, Southeastern would have been the same. Um, there would have been some range, even if most professors or many professors would have fallen into this category of theological liberalism. And, and the reason, and I, I, I think back to my Baptist, uh, history courses and, and seminary and such. And I remember always being told stuff like, well, yeah, Baptist liberals are really not all that liberal. 
I don't know where they got that because most <laughs> of your early liberals are Baptists. Uh, University mm-hmm. of Chicago, they're Baptists. Okay, Shaler mm-hmm. Matthews, George Berman Foster, William Rainey Harper. I mean, we could go through all these guys. The first person to write a systematic theology from the modernist perspective, William Newton Clark. He was a Baptist. Okay, so so Baptists were not just part of the rise of theological liberalism; they were really at the heart, in part because of the free church tradition. So that's interesting. Then they might say something like, "Oh yeah, but in the South, you know, no, they're just as liberal." <laughs> um, but oftentimes people think that liberals have edged teeth and they hate the Bible and they, they hate the church. No, these people are, are pious very often and love the Bible. And man, they could preach, you know, they could preach you to tears. They're persuasive, they're rhetorical, and many of them sincere in their own hearts. Now, I have some, some sad things I could say about Petit uh, in terms of struggles that he had in his own soul as he writes in his journal privately. Um, and, and so I, you know, even wondering if God exists and things like that. Um, but many of them just sincere people who love the Bible, but again, different framework, different theology in so many ways. I mean, just, just fundamentally different from where Christianity has been for two millennia. Yeah. Long answer to your 60 second. No, no. <laughs> I, I think that's fascinating. So I think personally, we could probably talk for another hour about this topic and yeah. still have fun. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on now. Paul, do you have, I mean, if, if someone wants to follow your research and your writing, is there a place they can do that? Um, boy, I wish there was. Uh, you know, I, I do a little bit of work with the CPT. I was, I, I was giving a talk at their, con- their annual conference a few weeks ago. Um, I, I'm Right now, I'm currently working on hopeful revision. You know, I'm revising my dissertation for publication. So God willing, maybe next year, you know, that'll, that'll be coming out. Um, but my, my dissertation is available on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, Library website for free on there. Um, anyone can reach out to me. Uh, my email is on my church website, uh, paulsanchez408 at gmail.com. I'd be glad to, to you know, share any of the stuff I'm working on. I've delivered, you know, I've done a couple different uh, papers on this at ETS, and so some of those are available on, on Petite and liberalism. Yeah. So there's a few things out there like that. But no, I don't, I don't have a website. I'm not that cool. Um, uh, you've got you've got a Twitter, so that's pretty I've cool. I've got Twitter, yeah. So, you can follow me on Twitter, Paul Sanchez 408 and uh, would love to connect that way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking with us. This has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it. And for those who are listening, go, go follow Paul. Uh, keep up with his work because I think it's really interesting and it's really needed to help us to think well about these topics because they're not going away. Um, even in our day, we've got this constant battle between all oh, these people are going to be liberals and our... Uh, as a Southern Baptist, our seminaries are going liberal. Constant rhetoric around this. So I think it's helpful to think historically, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean uh, to help us to have level heads when we think about it and care for others? All right. So you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon.